Welcome to this Ubula audio presentation of P.G. Wodehouse's Jeeves and the Tie That Binds, Volume 3. Chapter 7 I need scarcely say that Tuppy's hard case, as outlined by the old blood relation, had got right in amongst me. You might suppose a fellow capable of betting you you couldn't swing yourself across the drone's swimming pool by the rings, and looping the last ring back deserved no consideration. But as I say, the agony of that episode had long since abated, and it pained me deeply to contemplate the spot he was in. For though I had affected to consider that the ancestor's scheme for melting Elrun Carl was the goods, I didn't really believe it would work. You don't get anywhere by filling with rich foods a bloke who wears a Panama hat like that. The only way of inducing the L.P. Runcall type of man to part with cash is to kidnap him, take him to the cellar beneath the lonely mill, and stick lit matches between his toes. And even then he would probably give you a dud check. The revelation of Tuppy's hard-upness had come with quite a surprise. You know how it is with fellows you see all the time. If you think about their finances at all, you sort of assume they must be all right. It never occurred to me that Tuppy might be seriously short of doubloons. But I saw now why there had been all this delay in assembling the bishop and assistant clergy and getting the show on the road. I presumed Uncle Tom would brass up if given the green light, he having the stuff in heaping sackfuls, but Tuppy had his pride and would quite properly jib at the idea of being supported by a father-in-law. Of course, he really oughtn't to have gone and signed Angela up with his bank balance in such a rocky condition, but love is love and it conquers all, as the fellow said. Having mused on Tuppy for about five minutes, I changed gears and started musing on Angela, for whom I had always had a cousinly affection, a definitely nice young prune, and just the sort to be a good wife. But of course the catch is that you can't be a good wife if the other half of the sketch hasn't enough money to marry you. Practically all you can do is hang about and twiddle your thumbs and hope for the best. Weary waiting about sums it up, and the whole layout, I felt, must be G and Wormwood for Angela, causing her to bedew her pillow with many a salty tear. I always find when musing that the thing to do is to bury the face in the hands, because it seems to concentrate thought and keep the mind from wandering off elsewhere. I did this now and was getting along fairly well when I suddenly had the uncanny feeling I was not alone. I sensed a presence, if you would prefer putting it that way, and I was not mistaken. Moving the hands and looking up, I saw that Madeline Bassett was with me. It was a nasty shock. I won't say she was the last person I wanted to see. Spurred, of course, heading that list of starters, with L.P. Runcall in close attendance, but I would have willingly have dispensed with her company. However, I rose courteously, and I don't think there was anything in my manner to suggest I would have liked to have hit her with a brick, for I am pretty inscrutable at all times. Nonetheless, behind my calm front, there lurked the uneasiness which always grips me when we meet. Holding the mistaken view that I am hopelessly in love with her, and more or less pining away into decline, this Bassett never fails to look at me when our paths cross with a sort of tender pity, and she was letting me have it now. So melting indeed was her gaze that it was only by reminding myself that she was safely engaged to Spo that I was able to preserve any equanimity and sangfroid. When she had been betrothed to Gussie Finknoddle, the peril of her making a switch had always been present, Gussie being the sort of speckled, new-collecting freak a girl might at any moment get second thoughts about. But there was something so reassuring in her being engaged to Spode, because whatever you might think of him, you couldn't get away from it that he was the seventh Earl of Sitcup, and no girl who had managed to hook a seventh Earl with a castle in Shropshire and an income of £20,000 per annum is likely going to change her mind about him. Having given me the look, she spoke, and her voice was like treacle pouring out of a jug. Oh, Bertie, how nice it is to see you again. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? I am fine. Well, that's fine. How's your father? He is fine. I'm sorry to hear that. My relations with Sir Watkin Bassett was such that a more welcome piece of news would have been that he had contracted bubonic plague and wasn't expected to recover. I heard you were here, I said. Yes, Bertie, I'm here. So I heard, 
You're looking well. Oh, I'm very well, and so very happy. Well, that's good. I wake up each morning to the new day, and I know it's going to be the best day that ever was. Today I danced on the lawn before breakfast, and then I went round the garden saying good morning to all the flowers, and there was a sweet black cat asleep in one of the flower beds. I picked it up and danced with it. I didn't tell her so, but she couldn't have made a worse social gaffe. There was one thing Augustus the cat, to whom she referred, hates, and it's his sleep disturbed. He must have cursed freely, though probably in a drowsy undertone. I suppose she thought he was purring. She paused, seeming to expect some comment on her fat-headed behaviour, so I said, Euphoria! I what? That's what it's called, Jeeves tells me, feeling like that. Oh, I see. I just call it being happy, happy, happy. Having said that, she gave a start and quivered and put a hand up to her face as if she were having a screen test and had been told to register remorse. Oh, Bertie. Hello? I'm so sorry. Eh? It was so tactless of me to go on about my happiness. I should have remembered how different it was for you. I saw your face twist with pain when I came in, and I can't tell you how sorry I am to think that it is I who have caused it. Life is not easy, is it? Not very. It's difficult. In spots. The only thing to be is brave. That's about it. You must not lose your courage, Bertie. Who knows? Consolation may be waiting for you somewhere. Some day you will meet someone who will make you forget you ever loved me. No, not quite that. I think I shall always be a fragment memory. Always something deep in your heart that will be with you like a gentle, tender ghost as you watch the sunset on summer evenings while the little birdies sing their off-to-bed songs in the shrubbery. I wouldn't be surprised, I said, for one simply has to say the simple thing. You look a bit damp, I added, changing the subject. Was it raining when you were out? A little, but I don't mind. I was saying good night to the flowers. Oh, you say good night to them too? Of course, their poor little feelings would be hurt if I didn't. Wise of you to come in. Might have got lumbago. That was not why I came in. I saw you through the window, Bertie, and I had a question to ask. A very, very serious question. Oh, yes? But it's so difficult to know how to put it. I shall have to ask, as they do in the books. You know what they say in books. What who say in books? Detectives and people like that, Bertie. Bertie, are you going straight now? I beg your pardon? Oh, you know what I mean. Have you given up your stealing ways? I laughed, one of those gay debonair ones. Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad. You don't feel the urge any more. You've conquered your cravings. I told Taddy it was just a kind of illness. I said you couldn't help yourself. I remembered her submitting this theory to him. I was hiding behind the sofa at the time, a thing I could have been compelled to do rather oftener than I wish. And so Walken Bassett had replied in what I thought dubious taste that it was precisely my habit of helping myself to everything I could lay my hands on that he was criticising. Another girl might have left it at that, but not M. Bassett. She was all eager curiosity. Have you had psychiatric treatments, Bertie? Or is it just your willpower? Oh, my willpower, yes. How splendid. I'm so proud of you. It must have been a terrible struggle. Oh, yes, so-so. I shall write to Daddy and tell him. Here she paused and put a hand on her left eye, and it was easy for a man of my discernment to see what had happened. The French window being opened, gnats in fairly large numbers had been coming through and flitting to and fro. It's a thing one always has to budget for in the English countryside. 
In America, they have screens, of course, which make flying objects feel pretty nonplussed. But these have never caught on in England, and the gnats have it more or less their own way. They horse around and now and then get into people's eyes. One of these, it was evident, had now gone to Madeline's. I would be the last to deny that Bertram Worcester has his limitations, but in one field of endeavour I am preeminent. In the matter of taking things out of eyes, I yield to no one. I know what to say and what to do. Counselling her not to rub it, I advanced handkerchief in hand. I remember going into the technique of operations of this kind with Gussie Ficknoddle at Totley, when he had removed a fly from the eye of Stephanie Bing, now the Reverend Mrs. Stinker Pinker, and we were in agreement that success could only be achieved by placing a hand under the patient's chin in order to steady the head. Omit this preliminary, and your efforts are bootless. My first move, accordingly, was to do so, and it was characteristic of Spode that he should have chosen this moment to join us, just when we were twain in what you might call close juxtaposition. I confess that there have been times when I have felt more at ease. Spode, in addition to being constructed on the lines of a rather oversized gorilla, has a disposition like that of a short-tempered tiger in the jungle, and a nasty mind which leads him to fall ready prey to what I have heard Jeeves call the green-eyed monster, which doth mock the meat it feeds on, viz. jealousy. Such a man, finding you steadying the head of the girl he loves, is always extremely liable to start trying to ascertain the colour of your insides, and to avert this I greeted him with what nonchalance I could muster. Oh, hello, Spode, old chap. I mean, Lord Sidcup, old chap. Here we all are, what? Jeeves told me you were here. And Aunt Dahlia says you've been knocking the voting public base over apex with your oratory and conservative interest. Must be wonderful to be able to do that. It's a gift, of course. Some have it and some haven't. I couldn't address a political meeting to please a dying grandmother. I should stand there opening and shutting my mouth like a goldfish. You, on the other hand, just clear your throat and the golden words come pouring out like syrup. I admire you enormously. Conciliatory, I think you'll agree. I could hardly have given him the old salve with a more liberal hand, and one might have expected him to simper, shuffle his feet and mumble. Awfully nice of you to say so, or something along those lines. Instead of which, all he did was come back at me with a guttural sound like an opera basso choking on a fishbone, and I had to sustain the burden of the conversation by myself. I've just been taking a gnat out of Madeline's eye. Oh. Dangerous devils, these gnats. Require skilled handling. Oh. Everything's back to normal now, I think, though. Oh, yes, Bertie, thank you ever so much. That was Madeline who said that, not Spode. He continued to gaze at me bleakly. She went on harping on the thing. Oh, Bertie's so clever. Oh. I don't know what I would have done without him. Oh. He showed wonderful presence of mind. Oh. I feel so sorry, though, for the poor little gnat. Well, it asked for it, I pointed out. It was unquestionably the aggressor. Yes, I suppose that's true, but... The clock on the mantelpiece now caught her denatted eye, and she uttered an agitated squeal. Oh, my goodness! Is that the time? I must rush off. And she did so, and I was at the point of doing the same, when Spode detained me with a curt one moment. There are all sorts of ways of saying one moment. This was one of the nastier ones, spoken with an unpleasant rasping note in his voice. I want a word with you, Worcester. I am never anxious to chat with Spode, but if I had been sure that he merely wanted to go on saying, oh, I would have been willing to listen. Something, however, seemed to tell me that he was about to give evidence of a wider vocabulary, and I edged toward the door. Some other time, don't you think? Not some other really time now. Well, I'm going to be late for dinner. You can't be too late for me. And uh, if you get your teeth knocked down your throat, as you will if you don't listen attentively to what I have to say, you won't be able to eat any dinner. Well, that seemed plausible. 
and decided to lend him an ear, as the expression is. Say on, I said. And he said on, lowering his voice to a sort of rumbling growl, which made him difficult to follow. However, I caught the word read and the word book and perked up a bit. If this was going to be a literary discussion, I didn't mind exchanging views. Book, I said. Book. You want to recommend a good book to me? Well, of course. It depends on what you like. Jeeves, for instance, is never happier than when he's curled up with his Spinoza or his Shakespeare. I, on the other hand, go in mostly for whodunits and novels of suspense. For the whodunits, I like Agatha Christie. She's always a safe bet. For a novel of suspense, though. Here I paused, for he had called me an appropriate name and had told me to stop babbling. And it's always my policy to stop babbling when a man eight foot six in height and broad in proportion tells me to. I went into the silence, and he continued to say on. I said I could read you like a book, Worcester. I know what your game is. I, I don't understand you, Lord Sidcap. Then you must be as big an ass as you look, which is saying a good deal. I'm referring to your behaviour toward my fiancée. I come into this room, and I find you fondling her face. I had to correct him there. One likes to get these things straight. Only her chin. Bah! He said, or something that sounded like that. And I had to get a grip on her in order to extract the gnat from her eye. I was merely steadying it. You were steadying it gloatingly. No, I wasn't. Pardon me. I got eyes and can see when a man is steadying a chin gloatingly. And when he isn't, you were obviously delighted to have an excuse for soiling her chin with your foul fingers. You are wrong, Lord Spoudcap. And as I say, I know what your game is, Worcester. You are trying to undermine me, to win her from me, with your insidious guile. And what I want to impress upon you, with all emphasis at my disposal, is that if anything of this sort is going to occur again, you would do well to take out an accident policy with some good insurance company at the earliest possible date. You probably think that being a guest in your aunt's house, I would hesitate to butter you over the front lawn and dance on the fragments and hobnail boots, but you're mistaken. It will be a pleasure, a genuine pleasure. By an odd coincidence, I brought a good pair of hobnail boots with me. So saying, and recognising a good exit line, when he saw one, he strode out. And after an interval of tense meditation, I followed him, repairing to my bedroom. I found Jeeves there, looking reproachful. He knows I can dress for dinner in ten minutes, but regards haste askance, for he thinks it results in a tie which, even if adequate, falls short of the perfect butterfly effect. I ignored the silent rebuke in his eyes. After meeting Spode's eyes, I was dashed if I was going to be intimidated by Jeeves's. Jeeves, I said, you're fairly well up in hymns ancient and modern, I should imagine. Who are the fellows in the hymn who used to prowl and prowl around? The troops of Midian, sir. That's right. Was Spode mentioned as one of them? Sir? I asked because he's prowling around as if Midian was his hometown. Let me tell you about it. I fear, sir, that will not be feasible. The gong is sounding. So it is. Who's sounding it? You said Seppings was in bed. The parlour-maid, sir, deputising for Mr. Seppings. I like her wrist work. Well, I guess I'll tell you later. Very good, sir. Pardon me, your tie, sir. What's wrong with it? Everything, sir, if you will allow me. All right, go ahead, but I can't help asking myself if ties really matter at a time like this. There is no time when ties do not matter, sir. My mood was somber as I went down to dinner. Anatole, I was thinking, would no doubt give us some of his best. But Spode would be there, and Madeline would be there, and Florence would be there, and L.P. Runkle would be there. There was, I reflected, always something... Chapter 8 It has been well said of Bertram Worcester that when he sets his hand to the plough, he does not stop to pick daisies and let the grass grow under his feet. 
Many men in my position, having undertaken to canvass for a friend anxious to get into Parliament, would have waited till after lunch next day to get rolling, saying to themselves, Oh, what difference do a few hours make? And going off to the billiard room for a game or two of snooker. I, in sharp contradistinction, as I have heard Jeeves call it, was on my way shortly after breakfast. It couldn't have been much more than a quarter at eleven when, fortified by a couple of kippers, toast, marmalade, and three cups of coffee, I might have been observed approaching a row of houses down by the river to which someone with a flair for the mot just had given the name River Row. From long acquaintance with the town, I knew that this was one of the partial parts of Market Snodsbury, stiff with the householders likely to favour the Conservative cause and it was for that reason that I was making it my first port of call. No sense, I mean, in starting off with the less highly priced localities where everybody was bound to vote Labour, and would not only turn a deaf ear to one's reasoning, but might also bung a brick at one. Ginger, no doubt, had a special posse of tough supporters, talking and spitting out of the side of their mouths, and they would attend to the brick-bunging portion of the electorate. Jeeves was at my side, but whereas I had selected number one as my objective, his intention was to push on to number two. I would then give number three the treatment, while he did the same to number four. Talking it over, we had decided that if we made it a double act and blew into a house together, it might give the occupant the impression he was receiving a visit from the plainclothes police and excite him unduly. Many of the men who live in places like River Row have a tendency to apoplectic fits as the results of high living, and a voter expiring on the floor from shock means a vote less on the voting list. One has to think of these things. What beats me, Jeeves, I said, for I was in a thoughtful mood, is why people don't object to somebody they don't know from Adam muscling into their homes without a... without a what? It's on the tip of my tongue. A with your leave or by your leave, sir. That's right, without a with your leave or a by your leave, and telling them which way to vote. Taking a liberty, it strikes me. It is the custom at election time, sir. Custom reconciles us to everything, a wise man once said. Shakespeare? Burke, sir, you will find the apothem on his On the Sublime and the Beautiful. I think the electors, conditioned by many years of canvassing, would be disappointed if no one called upon them. So we shall be bringing a ray of sunshine into their drab lives. Something on that order, sir. Well, you might be right. Have you ever done this sort of thing before? Once or twice, sir, before I entered your employment. What were your methods? I outlined as briefly as possible the main facets of my argument, bade my auditors good-bye, and withdrew. No preliminaries? Sir? You didn't make a speech of any sort before getting down to brass tacks? No mention of Burke or Shakespeare or the poet Burns? No, sir. It might have caused exasperation. I disagreed with him. I felt he was on the wrong track altogether. I couldn't expect anything in the nature of a triumph at number two. There's probably nothing a voter enjoys more than hearing the latest about Burke and his On the Sublime and Beautiful, and here he was deliberately chucking away the advantages his learning gave him. I had half a mind to draw his attention to the parable of the talents, with which I had become familiar when doing research for the scripture knowledge prize I won at school. Time, however, was getting along, so I passed it up. But I told him I thought he was mistaken. Preliminaries, I maintained, were of the essence. Breaking the ice is what it's called. I mean, you can't just barge in on a perfect stranger and get off the mark with an abrupt, Hoy there! I hope you're going to vote for my candidate. How much better to say, Good morning, sir. I can see at a glance that you're a man of culture, probably never happier than when reading your Burke. I wonder if you're familiar with his On the Sublime and Beautiful. Then away you go, off to when I start. You must have an approach, I said. I myself am all for the jolly and genial, I propose on meeting my householder to begin with a jovial, Hello there, Mr. Whatever it is, hello there, and thus ingratiating myself with him from the kick-off. I shall then tell him a funny story. Then and only then will I get to the nub, waiting, of course, till he has stopped laughing. I can't fail. I am sure you will not, sir. The system would not suit me, but it is merely a matter of personal taste. 
The psychology of the individual. What? Precisely, sir. By different methods, different men excel. Burke? Charles Churchill, sir. A poet who flourished in the early 18th century. The words occur in his epistle to William Hogarth. We halted. Cutting out a good pace, we had arrived at the door of number one. I pressed the bell. Zero hour, Jeeves, I said gravely. Yes, sir. Carry on. Very good, sir. Heaven speed your canvassing. Thank you, sir. And mine. Yes, sir. He pushed along and mounted the steps of number two, leaving me feeling rather as I had done in my younger days at a clergyman uncle's place in Kent when about to compete in the choir boy's bicycle handicap open to all those whose voices had not broken by the first Sunday in Epiphany. Nervous, but full of the will to win. The door opened as I was running through the high spots of the laughable story I planned to unleash when I got inside. A maid was standing there, and conceived my emotion when I recognized her as one who had held office under Aunt Dahlia the last time I had enjoyed the latter's hospitality. The one with whom the old sweats will recall I had chewed the fat on the subject of the cat Augustus and his tendency to pass his days in sleep instead of bustling about and catching mice. The sight of her friendly face was like a tonic. My morale, which had begun to sag a bit after Jeeves had left me, rose sharply, closing at nearly par. I felt that even if the fellow I was going to see kicked me downstairs, she would be there to show me out and tell me these things are sent to try us, with the general idea of making us more spiritual. Why, hello, I said. Good morning, sir. We meet again. Yes, sir. You remember me? Oh, yes, sir. And you have not forgotten Augustus? Oh, no, sir. He's still as lethargic as ever. He joined me at breakfast this morning, just managed to keep awake while getting outside his portion of kipper, then fell into a dreamless sleep at the end of the bed with his head hanging down. So you've resigned your portfolio at Aunt Dahlia's since we last met. Too bad. We shall all miss you. Do you like it here? Oh, yes, sir. That's the spirit. Well, getting down to business. I've come to see your boss on a matter of considerable importance. What sort of chap is he? Not too short-tempered? Not too apt to be cross with collars, I hope. It isn't a gentleman, sir. It's a lady. Mrs. Corkendale. This chipped off quite a bit of the euphoria I was feeling. I'd been relying on the story I'd prepared to put me over with a bang, carrying me safely through the first awkward moments when the fellow you've called on without an invitation is staring at you, as if wondering to what he owes the honour of this visit. And now it would have to remain untold. It was one I had heard from Cat's Meat Potter Peerbright at the Drones, and it was essentially a coney whose spiritual home was the smoking room or the men's washroom on an American train. In short, one by no means adapted to the ears of the genderless sex, especially a member of that sex who probably ran the local watch committee. It was, consequently, a somewhat damped Bertram Worcester whom the maid ushered into the drawing room, and my pep was in no way augmented by the first sight I had of my hostess. Mrs. Corkendale was what I would call a grim woman. Not so grim as my Aunt Agatha, perhaps, for that could hardly be expected, but certainly well up in the class of Jaal, the wife of Heber, and the Madame, whoever it was, who used to sit and knit at the foot of the guillotine during the French Revolution. She had a beaky nose, tight thin lips, and her eye could have been used for splitting logs in the teak forests of Borneo. Seeing her steadily, and seeing her whole, as the expression is, one marvelled at the intrepidity of Mr. Corkendale in marrying her, obviously a man whom nothing could daunt. However, I had come there to be jolly and genial, and jolly and genial I was resolved to be. Actors will tell you that on these occasions, when the soul is a twitter, and the nervous system, not like mother makes it, the thing to do was to take a deep breath. I took three, and immediately felt much better. Good morning, good morning, good morning, I said. Good morning, I added, rubbing it in, for it was my policy to let there be no stint. Good morning, she replied, and one might have totted things up so far so good, 
but if I said she had said it cordially, I would be deceiving my public. The impression I got was that the sight of me hurt her in some sensitive spot. The woman it was plain shared Spoh's view of what was needed to make England a land fit for heroes to live in. Not being able to uncork the story, and finding the way her eye was going through me like a dose of salts, more than a little trying to my already dented sang Freud, I might have had some little difficulty in getting the conversation going, but fortunately I was full of good material just waiting to be decanted. Over an after-dinner smoke on the previous night, Ginger had filled me in on what his crowd proposed to do when they got down to it. They were going, he said, to cut taxes to the bone, straighten out foreign policy, double our export, have two cars in the garage, and two chickens in the pot for everyone, and give the pound the shot in the arm and had been clamoring for years. Then we both agreed nothing could be sweeter, and I saw no reason to suppose that the McCorkendale gargoyle would not feel the same. I began, therefore, to be asking her if she had a vote. And she said yes, of course, and I said, well, that was fine, because if she hadn't had, the point of my argument would have been largely lost. An excellent thing, I've always thought, giving women the vote, I proceeded hardly, and she said, rather nastily it seemed to me, that she was glad I approved. When you cast yours, if cast is the word I want, I strongly advise you to cast it in favour of Ginger Winship. On what do you base this advice? She couldn't have given me a better cue. She handed it to me on a plate with watercress round it. Like a flash, I went into my sales talk, mentioning Ginger's attitude toward taxes, our foreign policy, our export trade, cars in the garage, chickens in the pot, and first aid for the poor old pound, and was shocked to observe an entire absence of enthusiasm on her part. Not a ripple appeared on the stern and rock-bound coast of her map. She looked like Aunt Agatha listening to the boy Worcester trying to explain away a drawing-room window broken by a cricket ball. I pressed her closely, or do I mean keenly? You want taxes cut, don't you? I do. And our foreign policy bumped up? Certainly. And our exports doubled, and a stick of dynamite put under the pound? I'll bet you do. Then vote for Ginger Winship, the man who, with his hand on the helm of the ship of state, will steer England to prosperity and happiness, bringing back once more the spacious days of good Queen Bess. This was a line of talk that Jeeves had roughed out for my use. There was also some rather good stuff about this septed isle and this other Eden. Demi-something. But I had forgotten it. You can't say that wouldn't be nice, I said. A moment before, I wouldn't have thought it possible that she could look more like Aunt Agatha than she had been doing, but now she achieved this breathtaking feat. She sniffed, if not snorted, and spoke as follows. Young man, don't be idiotic. Hand on the helm of the ship of state indeed. If Mr. Winship performs the miracle of winning the election, which he won't, he will be an ordinary, humble backbencher doing nothing more notable than saying hear, hear, when his superiors are speaking, and oh, and question when the opposition has the floor. As, she went on, I shall win this election as I intend to. I blinked. A sharp, what was that you said? Escaped my lips, and she proceeded to explain, or as Jeeves would say, elucidate. You are not very quick at noticing things, are you? I imagine not, or you would have seen that Market Snodsbury is liberally plastered with posters, boasting the words, Vote for McCorkendale. An abrupt way of putting it, but one that is certainly successful in conveying its meaning. It was a blow, I confess, and I swayed beneath it like a aspen, if aspens are those things that sway. The Worcesters can take a good deal, but only so much. My most coherent thought at that moment was that it was just my luck when I sallied forth as a canvasser to collide first crack out of the box with the rival candidate. I also had the feeling that if Jeeves had taken on number one instead of number two, he would probably have persuaded Mama Corkendale to vote against herself. I suppose if you had asked Napoleon how he had managed to get out of Moscow, he would have been a bit vague about it. It was the same with me. 
I found myself on the front steps with only a sketchy notion of how I got there, and I was in the poorest of shapes. To try to restore the shattered system, I lit a cigarette and had begun to puff. When a cheery voice hailed me, I became aware that some foreign substance was sharing my doorstep. Hello, Wooster, old chap. It was saying. And the mists cleared before my eyes. I saw it was Bingley. I gave the bladder a distant look. Knowing that this blot on the species resided in Market Snarsbury, I had foreseen I might run into him sooner or later, so I was not surprised to see him. But I was certainly not pleased. The last thing I wanted in the delicate state to which the McCorkendale had reduced me was conversation with a man who set cottages on fire and chased the hand that fed him hither and thither with a carving knife. He was as unduly intimate, forward, bold, intrusive, and deficient in due respect as he had been at the junior Ganymede. He gave my back a cordial slap and would, I think, have prodded me in the ribs if it had occurred to him. You wouldn't have thought that carving knives had ever come between us. And what are you doing in these parts, cocky? He asked. I said I was visiting my aunt, Mrs. Travers, who had a house in the vicinity, and he said he knew the place, though he had never met the old geezer to whom I referred. I've seen her around. Red-faced old girl, isn't she? Fairly vermilion, yes. Hard blood pressure, probably. Or caused by going in on a lot of hunting. It chaps the cheeks. Different from a barmaid. She cheeks the chaps, huh? If he had supposed that this crude humour would get so much as a simper out of me, he was disappointed. I preserved the cold aloofness of a Wednesday matinee audience, and he proceeded. Yes, that might be it. She looks a sport. Making a long stay, huh? I don't know, I said, for the length of my visits to the old ancestor is always uncertain. So much depends on whether she throws me out or not. Actually, I'm here to canvass for the Conservative candidate. He's a pal of mine. He whistled sharply. He'd been looking repulsive and cheerful. He now looked repulsive and grave. Seeming to realize he had omitted a social gesture, he prodded me in the ribs. You're wasting your time, Worcester, old man, he said. He hadn't an earthly. No, I quavered. It was simply one man's opinion, of course, but the earnestness with which he had spoken was unquestionably impressive. What makes you think that? Never mind what makes me think it. Take my word for it. If you're sensible, you'll phone your bookie and have a big bet put on McCorkendale. You'll never regret it. You'll come to me later and thank me for the tip with tears in your... At some point in this informal exchange of thoughts by spoken word, as Jesus' Dictionary of Synonyms puts it, he must have pressed the bell, for at this moment the door opened and my old buddy the maid appeared. Quickly adding the word eyes, he turned to her. Is Mrs. McCorkendale in, dear? He asked, and having been responded to in the affirmative, he left me. I headed for home. I ought, of course, to have carried on a long river row, taking the odd numbers while Jeeves attended to the even, but I didn't feel in the vein. I was uneasy, you might say, if you happen to know the word that the prognostications of a human wart like Bingley deserve little credence. But he had spoken with such conviction, so like someone who had heard something, that I couldn't just pass them off with a light laugh. Brooding intensely, I reached the old homestead and found the ancestor lying in a chaise lounge, doing the observer crossword puzzle. Chapter 9 there was a time when this worthy housewife, when tackling the observer crossword puzzle, would snort and tear her hair out and fill the air with strange oaths picked up from cronies on the hunting field. But consistent inability to solve more than about an eighth of the clues has brought a sort of dull resignation, and today she merely sits and stares at it, knowing that however much she licks the end of her pencil, little or no business will result. As I came in, I heard her mutter, soliloquizing like someone in Shakespeare. She muttered, measured tread of saint round St. Paul, for God's sake, seeming to indicate that she had come up against a hot one, 
and I think it was a relief to her to become aware that her favourite nephew was at her side and that she could conscientiously abandon her distasteful task, for she looked up and greeted me cheerily. She wears tortoise-shell-rimmed spectacles for reading, which makes her look like a fish in an aquarium. She peered at me through these. Hello, my bounding Bertie. Good morning, old ancestor. Up already? I've been up for some time. Then why aren't you out canvassing? And why are you looking like something the cat brought in? I winced. I had not intended to disclose the recent past, but with an aunt's perception she had somehow spotted that in some manner I had passed through the furnace, and she would go on probing and questioning till I came clean. Any capable aunt can give Scotland Yard inspectors strokes and bisques in the matter of interrogating a suspect, and I knew that all attempts at concealment would be fruitless, or is it bootless? I would have to check that with Jeeves. I am looking like something the cat brought in because I am feeling like something the CBI, I said. Aged relative, I have a strange story to relate. Do you know a local blister by the name of Mrs. McCorkendale? The one who lives on River Row? That's the one. She's a barrister. She looks it. You've met her? Yes, I've met her. She's Ginger's opponent in the election. I know. Is Mr. McCorkendale still alive? Died years ago. He got run over by a municipal tram. I don't blame him. I've done the same myself in his place. It's the only course to pursue when you're married to a woman like that. How did you meet her? I called on her to urge to vote for Ginger. I said this, and in a few broken words I related my story. It went well, in fact, it went like a breeze. Maybe I was unable to see anything humorous in it, but there was no doubt about its being entertaining to the blood relation. She guffawed more liberally than I had ever heard a woman guffaw. If there had been an aisle, she would have been rolling in it. I couldn't help feeling how ironical it was that, having failed so often to be well-received when telling a funny story, I should have aroused such gales of mirth with one that was so essentially tragic. While she was giving her impersonation of a hyena, which had just heard a good one from another hyena, Spode came in, choosing the wrong moment as usual. One never wants to see Spode, but least of all when someone is having a hearty laugh at your expense. I'm looking for the notes for my speech for tomorrow. He said. Hello, what's the joke? Convulsed as she was, it was not easy for the ancestor to articulate, but she managed a couple of words. It's Bertie! Oh? Said Spode, looking at me as if he found it extremely difficult to believe that any word or act of mine could excite mirth and not horror and disgust. He's just been calling on Mrs. McCorkendale! Oh? And asking her to vote for Ginger Winship! Oh, said Spode again. I've already indicated that he was a convulsive O-sayer. Well, it is what I would have expected of him. And with another look in which scorn and animosity were nicely blended, and a word to the effect that he might have left those notes in the summer house by the lake, he removed his distasteful presence. That he and I were not on Damon and Pythias terms seemed to have impressed itself on the aged relative. She switched off the hyena sound effects. He's not a bottomless type, Spode is. No. He doesn't like you. No, he doesn't. And I don't think he likes me either. No, I said, and it occurred to me, for the Worcesters are essentially fair-minded, that it was hardly for me to criticize Spode's O's when my no's were equally frequent. Why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own Worcester? I found myself asking myself. It had been one of the many good things that I had picked up in my researches when I won that scripture knowledge prize at my private school. Does he like anyone? asked the relative. Except presumably Madeline Bassett? He seems fond of L.P. Roncal. What makes you think that? 
I overheard them exchanging confidences. Oh, said the relative, for these things are catching. Well, I suppose one ought not to be surprised. Birds of a feather, after all. Flock together? Exactly. And even the dregs of pond life fraternize with other dregs of pond life. By the way, remind me to tell you something about L.P. Roncal. Right ho. We will come to Roncal later. This animosity of Spode's. Is it just the memory of old Totley days, or have you done anything lately to incur his displeasure? This time I had no hesitation in telling her all. I felt she would be sympathetic. I laid the facts before her with every confidence that an aunt's condolences would result. There was this gnat. I don't follow you. I had to rally round. You've still lost me. Spo didn't like it. So he doesn't like gnats either? Which gnat? What gnat? Will you get on with your story, curse you, Bertie? Starting at the beginning and carrying on to the end. Oh, certainly, if you wish. Here's the scenario. I told her about the gnat in Madeline's eye, the part I had played in restoring her vision to mid-season form, and the exceptions Spode had taken to my well-meant efforts. She whistled. Everyone seems to be whistling at me today. Even the recent maid, on recognising me, had puckered up her lips as if about to. I wouldn't do that sort of thing again, she said. If necessity arose, I would have no option. Then you'd better get one as soon as possible, because if you keep on taking things out of Madeline's eye, you may have to marry the girl. But surely the peril has passed now that she's engaged to Spode. I don't know, Bertie. I think there's some trouble between Spode and Madeline. I would be surprised to learn that in the whole W1 postal section of London there is a man more capable than Bertram Worcester of bearing up with a stiff upper lip under what I have heard Jeeves call the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. But at these frightful words I confess that I went into my old Aspen routine even more wholeheartedly than I had done during my get-together with the relic of the late McCorkendale, and not without reason. My whole foreign policy was based on the supposition that the solidarity of these two consenting adults was something that couldn't be broken or even cracked. He, on his own statement, had worshipped her since she was so high, while she, as I have already recorded, would not lightly throw a man of his eligibility into the discard. If ever there was a union which you could have betted with perfect confidence would culminate in a golden wedding with all the trimmings, this was the one. Trouble? I whispered hoarsely. You mean there's a, a, a what do you call it? What would that be? A rift within the lute which widens soon and makes the music mute. Not my own, it's Jeeves. The evidence points in that direction. At dinner last night I noticed he was refusing Anatole's best, while she looking wan and saint-like and crumbled bread. And talking of Anatole's best, what I wanted to tell you about L.P. Roncal was that zero hour is approaching. I am crouching for my spring, and have strong hopes that Tuppy will soon be in the money. I clicked my tongue. Nobody could be keener than I was on seeing Tuppy dip into L.P. Roncal's millions, but this was no time to change the subject. Never mind about Tuppy for the moment. Concentrate on the sticky affairs of Bertram Wilberforce Worcester. Wilberforce, she murmured, as far as a woman of her outstanding lung power could murmur. Did I ever tell you how you got that label? It was your father's doing. The day before you were lugged to the font, he came in looking like a minor actor, playing a bit part in a gangster film. He had just won a packet on an outsider in the Grand National, called Wilberforce, and he insisted on you carrying that name. Tough on you, but we all have our crosses to bear. Your Uncle Tom's second name is Portarlington, and I came with an ace of being christened Phyllis. I wrapped her sharply on the top knot with a paper knife of oriental design, the sort that people in novels of suspense are always getting stabbed with in the back. 
Don't wander from the res. The fact that you nearly got christened Phyllis will no doubt figure in your autobiography. But we need not discuss it now. What we are talking about now is the ghastly peril that confronts me if the Madeline Spode Axis blows a fuse. You mean that if she breaks her engagement, you will have to fill the vacuum? Exactly. She won't. Not a chance. But you just said... I only wanted to emphasize my warning to you not to keep taking gnats out of her eyes. Perhaps I overdid it. You chilled me to the marrow. Sorry I was so dramatic. You needn't worry. They only had a lover's tiff, such as occurs with the mushiest couples. What about? How am I supposed to know? Perhaps he queried her statement that the stars were God's daisy chain. I had to admit, there was something in his theory. Madeline's breach with Gunsey Finknoddle had been caused by her drawing his attention to the sunset, and saying sunsets always made her think of the blessed damsel leaning out from the golden bar of heaven. And he said, who? And she said, the blessed damsel. And he said, never heard of her. Adding that sunsets made him sick, and said the blessed damsel. A girl with her outlook would be bound to be touchy about stars and daisy chains. It's probably over by now, said the ancestor. All the same, you'd better keep away from the girl. Spode's an impulsive man. He might slosh you. He said he would. He used the word slosh? No, but he assured me he would butter me over the front lawn and dance on the remains with hobnailed boots. Much the same thing, I suppose. So I would be careful if I were you. Treat her with distant civility. If you see any more gnats headed in her direction, hold their coats, wish them luck, but restrain the impulse to mix in. I will. I hope I have relieved your fears. You have old flesh and blood. Then why the furrows in your brow? Oh, those. It, it's ginger. What's Ginger? He's why my brow is furrowed. It shows how profoundly the thought of Madeline Bassett probably coming into circulation again had moved me that it was only now I remembered Bingley and what he had said about the certainty of Ginger's finishing as an also ran in the election. I burn with shame and remorse that I should have allowed my personal troubles to make me shove him down to the foot of the agenda paper in this scurvy manner. Long ere this, I ought to have been inviting Aunt Dahlia's views on his prospects. Not doing so amounted to letting the pail down, a thing I pride myself on never being guilty of. Little wonder I'd bead with the S and R. I hasten to make amends, if those are what you make when you have done the dirty on a fellow you love like a brother. Did I ever mention a bloke called Bingley to you? If you did, I've forgotten... He was my personal attendant for a brief space when Jeeves and I differed about me playing the banjo. That time when I had a cottage down in Chuffnell Regis? Oh, yes. He set it on fire, didn't he? While tight as an owl, it was burned to a cinder, as was my banjo. I've got him placed now. What about him? He lives in Market Snodsbury. I met him this morning and happened to mention that I was canvassing for Ginger. If you call it canvassing. And he was telling me I was wasting my time. He advised me to have a substantial bet on Mama Corkendale. He said Ginger hadn't an earthly chance. He's a fool. I must say I've always thought so, but he spoke as if he had inside information. What on earth information could he have? An election is not a horse race where you get tips from the stable cat. I don't say it may not be a close thing, but Ginger ought to win all right. He has a secret weapon. Repeat that, if you wouldn't mind. I don't think I got it. Ginger defies competition because he has a secret weapon. Which is? Spode. Spode? Our Lord Sidcup. Have you ever heard him speak? I did, just now. In public, you fool. Oh, in public? No, I haven't. He's a terrific orator, as I told you. Only you've probably forgotten. This seemed likely enough to me, 
Smode at one time had been one of those dictators going around at the head of a band of supporters in footer shorts shouting, Heil Spode! And to succeed in that line, you have to be able to make speeches. You aren't fond of him, and nor am I, but nobody can deny he's eloquent. Audiences hang on his every word, and when he's finished, cheer him to the echo. I nodded. I had had the same experience myself when singing the Yeoman's Wedding Song at village concerts. Two or three encores sometimes. Even when I blew up in the words and had to fill in with ding-dong, 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 I hurry along. I began to feel easier in my mind. I told her this, and she said, You're what? You have put a new heart into me, old blood relation. I said, ignoring the crack. You see, it means everything to him to win this election. Is he so bent on representing Market Snosbury in the Westminster Menagerie? It isn't that so much. Left to himself, I imagine, he could take Parliament or leave it alone. But he thinks Florence will give him the bum's rush if he loses. He's probably right. She can't stand a loser. So he told me. Remember what happened to Percy Gorringe? And others. England is strewn with ex-fiancés whom she has bounced because they didn't come up to her specifications. Dozens of them. I believe they form clubs and societies now. Perhaps calling themselves the Old Florentians. And having an annual dinner. We mused on Florence for a while. Then she said she ought to be going to confer with Anatole about dinner tonight, urging him to dish up something special. It was vital, she said, that he should excel his always high standard. I was speaking just now when you interrupted me and turned my thoughts to the name Wilberforce of L.P. Runcal. You said you had an idea he might be going to cooperate. Exactly. Have you ever seen a python after a series of hearty meals? Not to my knowledge. It gets all softened up. It becomes a kinder, gentler, more lovable python. And if I am not greatly mistaken, the same thing is happening to L.P. Runcal as the result of Anatole's cooking. You saw him at dinner last night. Sorry, no, I wasn't looking. Every fibre of my being was concentrated on the foodstuffs. He would have repaid being inspected, would he? Worth seeing, eh? He was positively beaming. He was too busy to utter, but it was plain that he had become all amiability and benevolence. He had the air of a man who would start scattering largesse if given a word of encouragement. It is for Anatole to see to it that this Christmas spirit does not evaporate, but comes more and more to the boil, and I know I can rely on him. Good old Anatole, I said, lighting a cigarette. Amen, said the ancestor reverently. Then touching on another subject. Take that foul cigarette outside, you young hellhound. It smells like an escape of sewer gas. Always glad to indulge her lightest whim, I passed through the French windows in a far different mood from that in which I had entered the room. Optimism now reigned in the Worcester bosom. Ginger, I told myself, was going to be all right. Tuppy was going to be all right and it would not be long before the laughing love god straightened things out between Madeline and Spode, even if he had talked out of turn about stars and daisy chains. Having finished the Gasper, I was about to return and resume conversation with the aged relative, when from within there came the voice of Seppings, now apparently restored to health, and what he was saying froze me in every limb. I could not have become stiffer if I had been Lot's wife, whose painful story I had to read up on when I won that scripture knowledge prize. What Seppings was saying ran as follows. Mrs. McCorkendale, madam, 